Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Innocent Until Proven Guilty, Mimamsa on Knowledge and Language. In the Islamic religion, it is believed that God sends different revelations to different peoples, the Torah for the Jews, the Gospel for the Christians, and finally and definitively, the Quran for the Muslims. This idea was extended to the traditions of India. Buddhists and Hindus, too, were seen as peoples of the book, and the Muslim prince Dada Shiku, who lived in India in the 17th century, even detected an allusion to the Upanishads in the Quran itself. But the Mimamsa school would have rejected this well-meaning analogy. Where the Torah, Gospels, and Quran are thought to be sent to humankind from God through divine revelation, Mimamsakas held that their holy books, the Vedas, are without any author at all. The Veda did not come from the gods or from any prophet, and it was not sent. It is permanent in the sense of having always existed or having no beginning. And since the Veda consists of words and sentences, this implies that language itself is permanent, a consequence that Mimamsakas were more than happy to embrace. Already last time, we mentioned this idea and said that it formed part of the Mimamsa attempt to establish unimpeachable authority for the Veda. But why depend on such a radical proposal, one rejected even by other Brahminical schools like the Nyaya? The short answer is that if the Veda is permanent and has no author, then it cannot contain any errors. After all, errors only arise when there is someone, like an author, who is in a position to make a mistake. If the Veda has no author, it must be entirely trustworthy. The long answer will consist of the rest of this episode, and will mean looking at Mimamsa ideas about knowledge and language. The Mimamsakas ground their account of the Veda in an empiricist and naturalist account of human knowledge. Roughly speaking, their reasons for acknowledging the truth of the Veda are the same as your reasons for acknowledging that you are hearing my voice right now, and that the objects in your immediate environment are what they seem to be. The roots of this epistemology lie in a passage of the Mimamsa Sutra, where Jaimini writes, Perception is the knowledge which one has by the senses coming in contact with something existent. He's straightforwardly endorsing the idea that sense perception can give us accurate information about things. To put it in the terms of later philosophical developments, sensation is a pramana, a source of knowledge or justification. But we know from our earlier discussion of skepticism in ancient India that such claims were not going to go unchallenged, and it looks as though the skeptic will have a particularly easy time casting doubt on this particular pramana. She need only point out that sensation is often misleading. That stuff cooking in the pan looks like rice, but it's actually tapioca. That guy looks like Jim Rice, who used to play baseball for the Red Sox, but it's actually his twin brother. Of course, the empiricist can insist that sensation is very rarely misleading, so we can depend on it, generally speaking. But Mimamsa do not seem to be ideally placed to make that response because they are happy to use so-called rice-in-the-pan reasoning in other contexts. They are happy to say that all the rice is cooked if one grain is soft and that the details of one ritual can be transferred to another, 
So how can they stop the skeptic from arguing from the misleading nature of one sense experience to the doubtfulness of sensation as a whole? The Mimamsa answer is that sensations are innocent until proven guilty. The idea comes into the commentary tradition quite early, already before Shabara's authoritative commentary on Jaimini. We should take every cognition to be true unless it is trumped by another cognition that overturns it. The commentators, including Shabara, do readily admit that a variety of factors can undermine sensation in this way. You might taste the stuff in the pan and realize it is too sweet to be rice, or you might be drunk or deranged, which would undermine your sensations and beliefs more generally. Nowadays, philosophers would call such things defeaters. In the absence of anything that defeats a sense perception, the perception should be taken as true. In a further development of this idea, Kumare Rabata states in his commentary on Shavara's Basya that sensations possess what he calls svata pramanya, meaning intrinsic validity. What does this mean? Later, Mimamsakas couldn't agree. A minority view understood Kumarela to be saying that a sensation is valid so long as it arose in a reliable way. As long as you are not in fact deranged, drunk, and so on, your cognitions are reliable. It is up to each of us to check whether our cognitions arose in a trustworthy fashion, and if so, we can and should put our trust in them. Others thought Kumarela's point was that valid sensations simply present themselves as true. If you see rice in a bowl in front of you in normal conditions, you have no hesitation in taking yourself to know there is rice in front of you. Only if there is some warning sign, like a strange taste to the rice or an awareness that you're drunk, would you even consider doubting the perception you are having. And this is exactly right, according to Kumarela. As he puts it, that cognition which is unshaken and does not conflict with cognitions occurring at other times and places is a pramana, that is, a source of knowledge. In normal conditions, we should not bother fretting about the possible falsehood of our cognitions, and for sure we should not give in to the worries raised by the skeptic that all cognitions may be unreliable. But doesn't this just amount to an unjustified leap of faith? It is no good for Kumarela to insist dogmatically that we can trust our perceptions. This is precisely what the skeptic denies, and she has good reason given that perceptions are indeed occasionally misleading. The Mimamsakas can make another move here, though, by borrowing a weapon from the skeptic's own arsenal. If we demand some sort of confirmation or justification for every one of our cognitions, then a regress looms. Each cognition will need another cognition that confirms it. If I double-check whether the stuff in the bowl is rice by tasting it, how do I know that I am tasting accurately? I might test this further sensation by asking you to taste the food too, but your agreement that the rice really is rice is also open to skeptical challenge. The moral that a skeptic draws from this, as we know, is that no pramana is reliable. Mimamsa draws the reverse conclusion. There must be some kind of foundational cognitions, since otherwise we could never be confident of knowing anything at all, but of course we are confident in having knowledge. Now, let's go back to the idea that the Veda has no author. Though this eventually became a distinctive claim of Mimamsa, it does not appear explicitly in Jaimini himself. What he says is that words are always prior to their speakers, which can be taken to imply that the Veda, and language in general, are permanent. Again, 
the perfect and absolute authority of the Veda can only be challenged on the basis of some defeater. If it had been authored, then we could always fear that the author, even a divine author, may have made some mistake. We should trust in sensation unless we have reason to think that the sensation came about in some kind of defective manner. We should trust in the Veda in exactly the same way, except that in this case there can be no worry that it came about in a defective manner, because it did not come about at all. It may seem that this purchases the authority of the Veda too cheaply. Its validity is claimed to be supreme simply because it has no competition, so it wins by default. But put yourself in the position of Jaimini or Kumarila. Certainly, the Vedic tradition was coming under fire from Buddhists, Jainas, and others, so it's not as if the Mimamsakas were oblivious to the phenomenon of religious pluralism, yet Kumarila was confident that the alternatives could easily be exposed as invalid. The critics of Vedic ritual, meanwhile, had provided no good reasons to doubt the efficacy of the ritual, or at least no reasons that the Mimamsakas thought were any good. Finally, if there were good reasons to doubt, we would know about them. Kumarila is so confident in the sources of human knowledge that for him, the absence of a cognition supporting something is a good reason to reject that thing, as long as the conditions are favorable. If you are in a position to know about the contents of a pan, yet have no evidence that there is rice in the pan, that in itself would be reason to believe that there is no rice in the pan. Likewise, there is no cognition, nor even the possibility of any cognition, that could overturn Vedic authority. With no defeaters in sight, Mimamsa declares victory. Their stance on these issues has various other implications. One takes them into conflict yet again with the Buddhists. Where Buddhism denies the existence of an enduring self, Mimamsa insists upon it. We recognize automatically that there is an I who is experiencing the things we remember experiencing and feel that this is who we still are. Just as I see that there is a dirty pan in the sink waiting to be washed, so I remember myself eating the rice that was prepared in that pan. Making short shrift of the nuanced critique offered by the Buddhists, Mimamsa simply assumes that we are right in taking ourselves to be enduring subjects of experience, since there is nothing to defeat that impression. And again, one might add that nothing could overturn the impression that one has a self. But the most far-reaching and celebrated aspect of the Mimamsa view on the beginninglessness of the Veda is their inference that language itself must have no beginning. The Mimamsakas offer a whole battery of arguments to support this surprising claim. For one thing, they say, children learn language by watching adults use language. We have no evidence that things have ever been otherwise. So, basing ourselves as always on our experiences of the world, we may assume that language like the Veda has always been passed down from generation to generation. Furthermore, there is good reason to think that things cannot be otherwise. Take a word like cow, or in Sanskrit, go. Incidentally, you can tell a lot about a culture by the meaning it assigns to the syllable go. For ancient Indians, it meant cow. In Japan, it means a board game of almost infinite complexity and subtlety, while for Americans, go is where you start when you are trying to build a monopoly. The word cow, in any case, refers not to any particular cow, but to cows universally. When I say it on numerous different occasions, I am using the same word over and over, not a new word each time. 
or we might say, appealing to mimamsa epistemology, that it certainly seems I am using the same word over and over, and there is no reason to doubt this, so we can take it to be true. The mimamsa argument here may seem rather unconvincing, insofar as it assumes that the word cow has either always been with us, or is actually a new word every time it is uttered. There would seem to be another possibility, namely that each word is introduced at some point and thereafter comes to be used with a stable meaning, thanks to convention and agreement among the users of the relevant language. But against this, Mimamsa argues that even if one can learn the meaning of individual new words, there is no way to introduce language as such. It is impossible to learn to speak or understand speech without engaging in and observing linguistic activity. Children who are learning to talk have to discover the meaning of each word by seeing how their elders talk. Once we are competent language users, we can learn new words by hearing them explained with other words, but it's inconceivable that this process could ever have begun from a situation where there was no language at all. But a critic who wants to resist the Mimamsa account will not be so easily cowed. She can point out that, on the Mimamsa theory, words supposedly have universal meaning. Yet if I say to the person assisting me in a ritual, bring the cow, a standard example in the Mimamsa texts, then I am referring to some specific cow, not cows in general. How can this be if the word cow is universal in its reference? The answer given by Mimamsa is that a word on its own cannot refer to anything in particular. For this, you need context, which at least includes the context provided by the rest of the sentence, and probably also other sentences and the circumstances in which they are spoken. By putting the words bring the in front of the word cow as I'm erecting a post, I can get my assistant to understand that he should fetch the particular cow that is about to be tied to the post and sacrificed. Even if this answer satisfies the critic, it will not satisfy the mimamsakas themselves. As the tradition developed, a dispute emerged concerning the relation between words and sentences. This was one aspect of a split within Mimamsa, with two rival factions following the lead of the commentators Kumarela and Prabhakara. Kumarela accepts that words have a general meaning when standing by themselves. The simple utterance cow does signify something. But that meaning is affected by putting the words into a complete sentence, connecting them so as to produce a new composite meaning. This is why Kumarela's idea was called the theory of the connection of what has been expressed. By contrast, Prabhakara teaches that words must appear within a sentence in order to have any meaning at all. This view is called the theory of expression through what has been connected. His view may seem rather implausible. Surely, if I just say the word cow, it does call to mind some meaning. But Prabhakara's view should not be dismissed so easily. Certainly, many words do seem to lack fixed meaning apart from context. Consider a word like at and its different meanings in the phrases the cow is at the sacrificial post, we will sacrifice her at sunrise, the cow looked at me with her big brown eyes and all at once I decided I couldn't go through with it. What Prabhakara is saying also makes particular sense, given the overall aim of Mimamsa, which is an inquiry into ritual injunctions like the one we mentioned last time, one who desires heaven should perform the fire ritual. Injunction is the most important of the four kinds of statement found in the Veda, the other three being the formula or mantra spoken during the ritual, 
the statement that indicates a name, and the explanation of a goal pursued in a ritual context. In the work that kicked off this whole tradition, Jaimini stated that a ritual injunction is a meaningful unity composed out of the words it contains. And of course, not just any string of words will do. Here, Mimamsa draws on the resources of Sanskrit grammar, carrying forward Panini's idea that the action expressed by the verb is central to the meaning of a sentence. The distinctions they draw here can be quite subtle, as when they point out that verbs may be put in the middle voice when the action in question is performed by the sacrificer and not the attending priest. The middle voice indicates that one is performing an action for oneself and not for somebody else. A more basic point about ritual injunctions takes us back once more to the core mission of Mimamsa, which is to inquire into Vedic language. Whereas normal everyday language typically describes the world we see around us, an injunction inevitably makes reference to something that is not yet present. This, of course, is the goal sought in the ritual. The fact that ritual injunctions are directed to the future shows that their validity is not grounded in sense perception. When the Veda tells you how to sacrifice so as to have children, get rich, or for that matter, get to heaven, it is looking to an unobservable future reward. This is distinctive, even definitive, of the language that reveals dharma. By the way, we have here another reason why the Veda cannot be trumped or overturned. How could sensation come into conflict with the Veda, since sensation tells us nothing about the questions that are at stake in Vedic ritual, namely questions of dharma? Despite this, Mimamsa is adamant that the words used by the Veda are being employed in their normal sense. If the Veda tells us to tie a cow to a post, it is not using the words cow and post in some allegorical, extended, or unfamiliar sense, it's simply calling a cow a cow and a post a post. Still, it is a unique source of knowledge, and one that could only have been delivered in the form of language. We need language to describe and articulate goals that are not yet present, and to explain how those goals are to be achieved. This is typical of Mimamsa, a theory devoted to interpreting the sacred Veda, but offering an epistemology grounded in sense experience, and an analysis of language that applies just as well to sentences uttered by cowherds, assuming, that is, that the cowherds in question speak Sanskrit. Mimamsa makes no appeal to supernatural forms of knowledge, and in fact impatiently rejects such claims when they are made by other schools. It dismisses the claim that the Buddha was omniscient, and the notion that yoga can confer a special form of insight on its practitioners. Such supposed forms of cognition simply have no basis in our normal experience, and it is normal experience we should follow, along with testimony in the form of language, unless, of course, we have good reason not to. Mimamsa thus exemplifies the potential of Indian philosophy to overturn assumptions that seem natural in light of European intellectual traditions. We may easily suppose that a devotion to scriptural authority must come together with a belief in higher supernatural forms of cognition, and with a belief in revelation that erupts into history, dividing the ignorant past from a new age that is graced with previously inaccessible truth. No European thinkers can beat Mimamsa when it comes to respect for scriptural authority, yet its adherents vehemently rejected the rest of that supernaturalist picture, fusing a hermeneutics worthy of Augustine with an empiricism so hard-nosed that it might impress David Hume. 
which is reason enough to devote one more episode to this fascinating tradition as we meet an outstanding interpreter of this school of interpretation, Eliza Freshi, who will be our guest next time here on the History of Philosophy in India. Allah,